Hello and welcome back to The Crash Podcast, clinical radiology academics speaking honestly. I'm your host, Tom Termazine, consultant radiologist in Norwich and the Royal College of Radiologists 2020 Röntgen Professor. In this podcast, we've been hearing all about inspirational radiologists from across the UK who are involved in academic radiology and research. And today we carry on in exactly the same vein. This is the second part of episode four, Different Tracks. In part one, we spoke with Christina Messiu from the Royal Marsden Hospital in London about her life as an academic radiologist in a full-time NHS post. And also with Michelle Williams from Edinburgh about academic radiology in Scotland and her own experiences in cardiac imaging research. In part two, we follow on with variations on similar themes, this time speaking with Kieran Foley, consultant radiologist at the Royal Glamorgan Hospital and Valindra Cancer Centre in South Wales, and an honorary senior lecturer at Cardiff University, and also Mark Little, consultant interventional radiologist at the Royal Berkshire NHS Foundation Trust and visiting professor of radiology at the University of Reading. A very warm welcome to both of you and thank you for joining us on the Crash Podcast. Hello, good to be here. Hello, thanks for inviting me. So, uh, Kieran, why don't we start with you? And as usual, let's hear a little bit about yourself, your background and how you came to be where you are today. Thanks for the introduction. So I'm Kieran Foley. I'm a consultant radiologist at the Royal Glamorgan Hospital and Valindra Cancer Centre in South Wales. My radiological interests include GI imaging, oncology, and I'm also interested in research. I did a PhD in Cardiff University and finished that in 2018. And that was all about improving staging of esophageal cancer and how we predict outcomes from those staging examinations. And I've also got a bit of short-term funding as part of my new consultant job to continue that research. So that's why I'm here today. Excellent. Thanks very much for the introduction, Kieran. We're just going to come on to an extremely serious part of the podcast that our guests are not allowed to dodge. And that, of course, is the crash test. Christina and Michelle have already answered half the questions in part one, but that still leaves plenty for both of you potential Pinocchios. Um, let me just get the crash test grid up and running again. Here we go. It's looking a little bit sorry for itself because it's been depleted, but we're still good to go. Kieran, obviously uh, you're up, so four to choose. Which one would you like to choose first? I'll choose number eight, please. What is your least favourite chocolate bar? Oh, that's a quite a difficult one. I do quite like chocolate and I like them all. But if I had to choose one, probably Bounty. Not a fan of coconut. I've heard that come up a little bit. Some people don't have it for the coconut. I'm a big fan if uh, Bounty are listening. <clears throat> okay, next one. Number 10, please. Live next door to the Louvre or the Guggenheim? Probably the Louvre. I love Paris. Great city. Okay, next one. Number three, please. Uh, what keeps you awake at night? The uh, stresses of research sometimes keep me awake at night. I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit more later, but I do wake up sometimes thinking about different research questions, <laughs> things like yeah, that. I think all of our guests would probably sleep a little more easier if they weren't doing research. That seems to be quite a standard answer for that one. Okay, and your last one. Number 15, please. What's the tallest mountain you have ever climbed? That was in the Andes in Peru and took a bit of time out of training and did the Inca Trail and that involved climbing over one of the mountains, which I can't pronounce at the moment, but it was 
over three and a half thousand meters high. So that's the biggest one. Do you get a bit lightheaded? Yeah, a bit <laughs> short of breath to say the least. Excellent. All right. Well, Kieran, thanks very much for doing the crash test. Mark, let's move on to you. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you came to be where you are today? So I started life as a physicist, actually. So I did my undergrad in physics and medical physics in Nottingham. And that was great grounding, spending time with all of the great pioneers of MRI. So I was there at the time when Sir Peter Mansfield was there and Peter Morris was my tutor. So did a lot of work as a physicist in medical physics. And from there, went to London to continue physics. So I did a master's at UCL. And that was really where my sort of fascination in medical research began, developing a body of research at that time in parallel imaging and functional magnetic resonance imaging. And I think the more and more physics I did, the more I sort of became fascinated with the sort of patient interaction and, and also fascination with what the radiologists were doing, because I was working a lot with radiologists uh, at that time. I trained uh, as a medical physicist and then decided to take the leap to go back to university and went to medical school and then usual sort of foundation jobs and things and then uh, ACF in Oxford and now where I am, which is as an interventional radiologist in Reading with a research group, which is primarily looking at emblotherapy. So that's blocking of arteries as a treatment option um, for various different things. And my current job is, is predominantly clinical with some, some protected research time with collaboration with the University of Reading, where sort of my group sits between the Royal Barks and, and Reading. So that's sort of a very quick pricey of my background and where I am currently. Excellent. Thanks so much, Mark. Hey, let's move straight on to the crash test for you. Okay, I'll save my lucky number till last. So let's start with number two. How many times did you fail your driving test? That's the every episode classic. What do you got? It is, isn't it? Well, once, actually. Failed it once. Once. Okay, and Kieran, you're not going to escape. Oh, I passed it first time. The eagle-eared amongst you will have noticed that there will be a mistake in the release on Wednesday the 4th of November. <laughs> I put Jamie McCann apart with Tim Bray when Tim has actually failed four times and Jamie only, and I say only three. So apologies to the listeners, and I guess to Jamie, and congratulations sort of uh, to Tim, who remains in the lead so far <laughs> with four failures. Okay, let's get back to uh, you still got something to do, uh, sorry. Let's go for number six, please, Tom. Have you ever cheated, wait for it, at Monopoly? Yes, very recently, actually, it must be said. So I've got two young children, five and nine, and my daughter is extremely competitive. So last Christmas, definitely a bit of shenanigans with regard to the banker and storage of £500 notes. So yes, hands up. She still won, though. Terrible. Okay, well, that's a life lesson. Never play Monopoly with Mark. Okay, next one. Uh, number 12, please, Tom. What's your secret talent? I like playing the guitar. And I, there would be, obviously, personal opinion as to whether you would uh, say I was any good at it or not. But uh, <laughs> definitely, as I disgracefully glide towards middle age, uh, still that yearning to be a rock star. I can get in with that. Yep. So uh, last one, then, which is, of course... Lucky 13, my lucky number. Would you rather be president of the United States or Supreme Court justice? Not making that up. That is the last <laughs> one. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, um, it's an impossible task either way, but I have to answer, don't I? So should, should we go president? Is that allowed? Yeah, sure. That's the well, test. Well, That's your answer. Well, and um, again, context for everyone. We are literally waiting on the result as we're recording. <laughs> so. Yes. Okay, look, Mark, thanks ever so much for doing the crash test. Very revealing from both of you.
Okay, let's start out with the real discussion for this podcast about clinical radiology and academia. Kieran, I didn't quite get the information for you about a journey, but clearly, Mark, you've moved from Nottingham, UCL, Norwich, Reading. You've been a lot of different places during your training and your career experiences. Now, Kieran, have you just been in one place or have you had an opportunity to move around? No, overall, I've just been in South Wales. I moved to the Gower Peninsula when I was younger, so during school days, and Then I went to the local college and then I went to Cardiff University to study medicine. I did my foundation program jobs in Wales and in the middle of that foundation program, I worked in New Zealand for a year. Then whilst I was in New Zealand, decided that I would like to apply for clinical radiology and then got a trading number. So I ended up back in Cardiff. I really enjoy living in Cardiff and it's a great place to be a radiologist. So we've talked a little bit about how different regions can present really unique opportunities for research. Do you think there has been anything in your experience in South Wales that has lent to supporting your research in that way? You've got to make the most of all the opportunities there are in your region. And I think it's really important that you are proactive about seeking out those opportunities. There is some great research going on in Cardiff. Sort of throughout my training, I could see what those pieces of research were and who was leading those pieces of research. So I then approached them to see if I could become involved. It was a consultant, a boss of mine at the time was Ashley Roberts in the University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff. And I approached Ashley and said, Look, I'm interested in doing some research. And together we started doing a few case studies, which then turned into writing my first paper, which was published in the European Journal of Radiology. And from there, the whole research interest grew. So Mark, coming to you, this story of training and degrees in lots of different places, do you think that fed into your experience and shaped the research and the research experiences that you've had? Yeah, 100%. I think for me, it certainly was the long way around. But I think having got to where I've got to now, I think it's been really beneficial. I keep going back to my physics grounding with whatever research I've done throughout my ACF. We did some analysis looking at a novel MRI sequence to look at perfusion in patients with peripheral vascular disease. Although a lot of my research is very clinically orientated, uh, looking at new treatments within interventional radiology, the use of of MRI has been throughout. And I think particularly picking up with the fMRI. So as I said, my my undergrad project was in fMRI. My master's thesis was in functional magnetic resonance imaging. And actually what I've been very fortunate to do uh, with my current role is my group are linked with the Centre for Integrated Neuroscience at the University. University of Reading and they've got a very whizzy 3T scanner and what we're doing with a number of my projects is utilizing that again to look at fMRI to look at how neuropsychology interplays with patients' pain. So one of my research topics I'm looking at, which is I know close to your heart with regard to your research background, is to look at a new treatment for osteoarthritis of the knee, where we're blocking off the tiny arteries in around uh, the synovium. And clearly there's a, a very complex interplay with patients' pain and clinical outcomes with any treatment that, that you do for osteoarthritis. And so As part of that, my group are looking at the neuropsychology around chronic pain. And one of the experiments we run is looking at functional magnetic resonance imaging. So it really has been a a sort of theme that's run throughout. And I've always gravitated towards that. 
you're not the first actually guest on the podcast who have done an undergraduate degree in another subject. I think Anna Abaro had also done one. Do you think there was an element of calling for being at the front line for patient interaction? And certainly, you know, interventional radiology is the pinnacle of that within radiology itself. Yes. You know, in hindsight, I probably should have applied to do medicine the first time round, but I wasn't the best student at school. I have to say that. And I certainly matured into my academic ambition. And I think much like the US system, I I do think there can be advantages for doing some bits and bobs first off to try and understand what you're interested in and what you're passionate about. And I I think that it has been beneficial to do those other degrees. And it's it's sort of all been cumulative and additive. And, And I think you're right. The main change for me was very much, I really enjoyed the interaction with patients. And all of my research has really been very patient-centric. And I I think that was very much in part the decision to take up my current job role, which is still very heavily clinically orientated, but it it enables me to do the research that I want to do, which is very patient-centric, patient-focused. And I made a real conscious decision to gravitate away from the sort of basic science behind the, the scanner and rather be sort of in front with the patient. So that was that was my motivation. I think an important message here is no matter what your background, whether you have done an undergraduate degree in another topic and you might feel the pressure to get on in your medical career, we are definitely seeing that success um, and productivity in academic radiology can come from all kinds of different career structures, be they upside down, integrated or coming late on. So I, I think that's a really important message to put out there for people that are considering it, that it really doesn't matter. And you can be informed by your history or by your current circumstances or where you like to go equally and be equally successful. Kieran, can I um, come to you? Last time we spoke with Michelle about the structure of academic training in Scotland and the SCREDs. Now, Wales has an equivalent academic training pathway. I think it's that WCAT. Was that something that you were involved in? Was it around when you were training? Can you tell us a bit about the structure of that also compared to what we described in the last part as the NIHR integrated academic training pathway in England? Yeah, sure. So I was really lucky to get the opportunity to complete my training on the WCAT fellowship. So WCAT stands for the Welsh Clinical Academic Training Fellowship. There are other schemes in other countries that are similar. The way that works is that there are a couple of jobs each year which are advertised. Traditionally, it's one in medicine and one in surgery. And you can either apply from a foundation programme to begin your training on the WCAT programme, or as I did, I moved sideways into the WCAT fellowship because I already had a training number in clinical radiology. And it was around the time that I was looking of ways to fund an MD or a PhD. Uh, Very opportunistically, a job was advertised specifically for clinical radiology. So I applied and got the job. Was the PhD opportunity actually built in to the training pathway? Yeah, that's right. And that was a great advantage of that pathway. There's a three-year salary-funded PhD integrated into the fellowship and the fellowship then extends to your CCT. So really it's that conveyor belt towards your consultancy. That seems like listening at the stories again we had 
in episode two, for example, the opportunity to have that actually integrated seems fantastic. And were there any prerequisites on what you might want to study? Well, at the time of application, you had to have some idea about a topic of interest that you wanted to do in your PhD. But again, there's some flexibility within the fellowship. You have to have a named supervisor. And with your supervisor, you were able to design the PhD around your research interests and also around what is available in the region at the time. Yeah, and one thing that's been itching since you said it was there was one post for surgery and one post for medicine. Which post did you take or apply for? Well, luckily, I didn't have to make that choice. As I mentioned earlier, there was one specifically advertised for clinical radiology. And I think there is a generally, you know, this appreciation that there are other specialities out there that aren't medicine or surgery. For instance, there was one recently advertised for clinical genetics. So there are these other, like you said, radiology is really important. It's fundamental to all specialities. And, and so it's really important that we push that through. Yeah, sorry, I overlooked that. I guess a natural question again would be, how often do the radiology posts come up? Um, well, unfortunately, there hasn't been one advertised since. So whether I <laughs> okay. put them off, I don't know. I doubt that. OK, thanks, Kieran. Mark, let's move on to you. You mentioned that you were an academic clinical fellow in your training in Oxford, but currently you are in a full time NHS post, albeit visiting professor at the, at the University of Reading. Did you ever consider pursuing your academic training beyond your radiology training in a formalised university post? I did. And actually, throughout my training, I only ever spent three months in a district general hospital. So I suppose it may have been seen as a slightly left field decision. But really, I think as I was thinking about sort of what career I wanted, I very much wanted to be a, a competent interventional radiologist first and foremost. And I think having listened to some of the early podcasts, there's that internal angst within us as to you want to be a good radiologist and you want to be a good academic. And I think, you know, hopefully we'll come on to talk about this, but effectively academia is two jobs, no matter what degree of time you get uh, to, to do it. To my mind, it's effectively two jobs. You kind of have to come to some degree uh, sort of ease with that decision. So I made the decision that having front loaded the research part of my career, I very much wanted to keep very clinically focused. And so I, I made the decision to try and find a job where I could do clinical intervention with an academic component. And so around CCT, had a lot of discussions with different trusts and the Royal Bucks are, albeit a district general hospital, a big district general hospital with a very passionate profile for research. We, we always do pretty well with the NIHR tables with regard to recruitment and number of studies that we're involved in. And we had a very frank discussion, really, which was, what do I see my job plan? And, and what sort of things do I would I like? And what can I bring to the trust? And it was very much, well, clearly, I'll have a big clinical commitment. But if I can have some dedicated research time, if I can have access to a trials unit, if I can get a research uh, nurse and some research support, then that might be the nucleus to enable me to do some good research and build on the things that I'd done in my ACF post. And they were great, actually. I must say the raw barks were, were fantastic. And they'd said all the right things in the right order. But obviously, it's not until you actually get into a post that you figure out whether that is all going to happen. And, and it did. And I did get to appoint a research nurse, which then led to two research nurses, which then led to a research assistant. And it grew. And it really is purely based on the team that, that I have and the, you know, the trust's support, really. I, I think I've been very lucky. 
So what's the split that you currently have between your academic time and your clinical time? So I get paid for by it is 1.25 PAs for, for research, which isn't enough. And as I say, you know, effectively what has happened is that as we've gone on and been successful with grants and been successful with trials, more money has come in and that time may have to extend. So it may be that if we were to have this conversation in another two years, my job split may be one of, you know, in inverted commas, a true academic radiologist because of trying to to run randomized control trial, trying to run the group, trying to keep grants coming, which are paying for a postdoc. So, you know, it's all getting quite serious quite quickly, actually, which is exciting and terrifying in equal measure, because it, I still sort of stick to, to my sort of modus operandi, which is to, to maintain the clinical stuff. But we've been very, very lucky. And I'm sure we'll talk about barriers. And, and yeah, that, you know, there certainly have been some barriers with regard to, to being a, an academic in a, in a large DGH and actually overcoming them. It, it, it's sort of a chicken and egg thing, getting the first grant, getting the first publications out. It's all about building track records. And I think we've been able to do that quite quickly, which has led us on to some bigger grants more latterly. So that, that's sort of where we are. Are currently. Well, that seems like remarkable success on the back of 1.25 programmed activities for research. Uh, Kieran, uh, what's the split like for you and what kind of clinical work are you doing in your clinical time balanced with the research in your research time? Well, as Mark mentioned earlier, around the time of CCT, I approached different health boards, different clinical directors to ask them whether it was possible to carry on some research into the consultant post. And halfway through my PhD, I knew that I wanted to continue in research in some form. So around that time of CCT, I approached various hospitals and one of them was the Valindra Cancer Centre, which is our local cancer centre in Cardiff. They were interested in the research I was doing and were keen to try and help me. I'm just really lucky and fortunate that there was some charitable funds available at the time, which were then able to be uh, to fund a short term research program at the Cancer Centre. So currently what I'm doing is a 50-50 split and my clinical work involves GI radiology mainly at the Royal Glamorgan Hospital. And then the other 50% of my week is spent at the Cancer Centre doing the research. Okay, let's give you a little opportunity to expand on the exact research you're doing right now. Well, there's a few strings to the research actually. And that's really because I've got a few interests, not necessarily one particular small aspect of clinical radiology. I still have my interest in upper GI cancers. So that's esophageal gastric cancer how we stage them and how we can improve the prognostic information from those staging investigations to predict outcomes such as treatment response and survival. Linked to that is work I'm doing with the School of Engineering in Cardiff University, which involves image analysis and how to extract different image biomarkers from CT scans and PET images. Those are broadly termed radiomics, so there's lots of groups that use the term of radiomics in that type of research. Going back to prognosis itself, I've actually got an interest in the statistical methods that are used in prognosis research. So that's how to develop a prognostic model and then how you go about trying to validate that model with new types of data. So that's roughly a, a few of the things. That I'm interested in. The last point actually is something I, that I don't think we've discussed yet on the Crash podcast and 
it's something that I've been reflecting on as I came out of my PhD, then progressed through my clinical fellowship and then my consultant job is the, the methodologies that we use as academic radiologists. It, it could be easy just to sit on one thing, but you actually always have to push yourself further and further. You have to understand new methodologies. You always need them to tackle new problems. And part of reinventing yourself in some respects as an academic can be the acquisition and incorporation of those new methodologies. And fantastic to hear about engineering. That's fantastic. You know, from my background, that I'm always keen to see that kind of collaboration. Kieran, if we continue with you, what do you think it takes and what kind of support do you need to be able to be applying correct methodologies, cutting edge techniques, things that really are making the most of your research? Yeah, I mean, it's really important to focus on methodology because good methodology makes good research. And you've really got to be proactive in approaching people who you know are developing these methods. and. I think you can approach them and say, look, I'm really interested in what you're doing. Can we work together? I'm interested in this. It would be great to collaborate on this particular study. I think you have to push yourself. You have to put yourself out there a bit. Often you're going to get people that aren't really that interested, but occasionally you'll find someone that really is and they're really keen to help you and really make the most of that opportunity. That's how you develop yourself. As you said, you learn all sorts of different methods and techniques. I've learned things now in this research time I have in my consultant role that I didn't know when I was doing my PhD. And it's that continuous learning cycle that I find really interesting and it also promotes better research of radiology. Mark, let's come on to you with this. You must have had a really interesting box of tricks from your experiences in medical physics. But the question of methodology, keeping up to date, right methodologies, working with people, approaching people, how has that shaped your research? So I think the, you know, the correct team, really, and, and the realisation that you can't do it all, you know, so and being aware of one's limitations. So I think particularly when designing trials, for me personally, I'm no statistician. I'm happy to uh, interpret statistics, but we've just recently gone through the process of writing a, a randomized control trial for the genicular embolization research. And, and you know, clearly with a, with a project of that magnitude and costing, you need a lot of uh, external support and help. So that's key. And I think just getting your team correct is really invaluable, whether that's liaising with trials unit or in-house. It's an important part of doing things the right way. So I'm smiling because I remember when we had our first conversation and I knew that you were working in osteoarthritis embolotherapy and I quite shamelessly started pushing my own imaging analysis on you but you're quite rightly you were very comfortable and sorted but as Kieran says you don't ask you don't know and no one really takes any offense in being asked or being told no you, you have to explore these things absolutely and collaboration is key and I think you know uh, I think that's one thing particularly from the ACF I think the ACF gave me lots of new tools but cost fertilization of ideas I call it coffee time so you know you go have a coffee and you just you meet someone from a completely different discipline and you have a chat and and it's very interesting just how small the world is and how easy it is to cross fertilize ideas particularly within the basic sciences and that's something that 
with the collaboration with the University of Reading, we find more and more we have sort of little breakout meetings and, and you'll meet people from different departments and, and that's, oh, yes, well, we've been, you know, we've been developing this bit of kit for the last 20 years. And you think, well, crikey, you know, that, that would be fantastic. So I'm a firm believer in, in the randomness of, of collaboration and not, not to plug your research and shamelessly or unshamelessly, but, you know, I think absolutely, you know, why not talk about utilising newer techniques for uh, looking at how we can quantify changes within the arthritic knee joint. You know, the, the worm scoring is very labour intensive and perhaps not the best thing to use. So, you know, I think you have to be open, you have to be flexible and you have to realise your limitations, you know, to try and do everything. And I think medics are particularly bad at that, actually. I think Coming from a, a physics background to a medic, what we used to find, you know, with my physics hat on, is when you'd have an academic meeting, the, the medics are, you know, full of bravado and yes, we can do this, that, and the other. Uh, whereas the physicists were very much, uh, you know, aligned to their discipline. And I think that, you know, we should perhaps take a step back and go, actually, we're not the best people to do the stats. We might not be the best people to do, you know, other aspects of trials. And, you know, we're good at what we're good at, but it should be a, a team approach. And, and we shouldn't feel bad to, to ask for that help. So we're all relatively well established in terms of career stage. And those networks that we have are currently still alive just through an email or through some kind of web conferencing facility. But it must be difficult, I suppose, if you're earlier on in your career at this current stage when, look, we're just about to face in going into lockdown in England. Uh, Kieran, you, you know, Wales obviously just coming out of theirs. So what kind of challenges do you think the current state of affairs poses to that sharing of ideas? Um, Mark, if I ask you. I think it is very different, uh, difficult rather. And I think, you know, COVID-19 has caused untold uh, issues, um, not least within research. I mean, particularly, you know, my, my trials were paused for six months. One thing that has come out of this, actually, which which is what we're doing now, is the webinar. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to get invited to talk on conferences and things. And Whilst the travelling is exciting initially, actually, it can be tiring. And I think actually it's been quite efficient to, to have the webinar discussions. A lot of conferences have picked that up and have rolled that out. And I know certainly from uh, registrars that have come to work with me and uh, some of the junior trainees who are on the hunt for projects, I think they found that webinar experience quite inclusive. So whilst there are clearly issues with running research and, you know, the coffee time, as I say, is certainly less, I think the digital age has been useful. Clearly, you know, some regard it's slightly overwhelming the number of webinar exposures but the feedback I have from my trainees is that they do get a lot out of it because you can you know you can go in and, and look at stuff online straight afterwards which is so much easier with everyone's being so busy to do and so perhaps there might be more cross-fertilization one could argue from uh, from COVID times with the uh, the accessibility to webinar discussions research discussions and podcasts such as these I think this is a really good initiative which you know, ultimately, we're trying to get people talking about academic radiology, putting it up there and identifying it as a high level priority, because I think to avoid the engagement really will set back uh, you know, clinical radiology. You know, it's very important. It's something I'm passionate about. And I think just like if you were 
choosing a conference to go to or a book to buy, you've got to have this element of selectivity uh, beforehand. It just so happens that the, as we've touched on before, it, you know, the costs are going to be much less in this kind of webinar format and the, the opportunities to see lots of different things are, I, I agree, I think uh, are much increased because of the current environment. And Kieran, can I ask about your takes on this, what COVID-19 has done, perhaps your research and also the research opportunities to collaborate and integrate? Yeah, well, it's a cliche, but COVID-19 has certainly changed the way in which we work. And we need to find ways to adapt to that over the coming years. That point about conferences is an important one. And I think we're going to have to decide as a community about how we run these conferences in the future. Personally, I really like attending conferences and having face-to-face -face discussions with people. And there's something about that I think you lose in a virtual format. One example I'll give you is I was at the ESCAR conference in Barcelona in 2013 and I started talking to Professor Steve Halligan from UCL and we started talking about what I was interested in and he mentioned a couple of papers and I went away and read them and that really triggered my interest in this methodology around prediction models and Without that interaction, I may not have had that. It's very difficult so, to bump into someone on a virtual corridor, isn't it? I mean, it, it, you're quite right, catching someone's eye, tap on the shoulder, um, when that was allowed, it's easy to break down those barriers. Absolutely. And there definitely is a place here for virtual, uh, virtual formats. And as, as I mentioned, we're just going to have to find different ways of working around this and different ways of interacting with people so that these ideas can flourish and we can collaborate with each other in this virtual platform. Okay, Karen, let's just go back to your experiences in South Wales, because I'm keen that we have representation from different regions across the UK. Do you think there are enough opportunities to develop as an academic radiologist in Wales? And what do you think the models for success are that you think could be developed? Well, there are not too many people doing research in South Wales and there have been limited opportunities in the past. That's something I'm hoping to change as I move forward in my career. And I've had to collaborate with people from different specialities because perhaps there haven't been those opportunities within radiology itself. So I've had to adapt and work with different people in order to progress my research career. My PhD was a very multidisciplinary PhD. I worked with surgeons, I worked with pathologists and oncologists. Actually, I think that really helped the research because it gave different perspectives about patient journeys and patient interactions that you don't sometimes get or is sometimes missing from clinical radiology. After all, we are clinical radiologists. We do have a role in MDTs and we are important to patient care. We must not forget that. There are ongoing barriers to research in South Wales. One thing I'd be interested to hear more from Mark is about how to develop an academic career within the NHS because there aren't too many opportunities within universities for academic radiologists. Let's throw that to you, Mark. And what about thoughts on barriers that you've faced? I mean, generically in research, but also as Kieran is asking about doing that in the NHS. Yeah, so I think I was very lucky, or I am very lucky, that to have a, a trust that 
recognises the importance of being a research active organisation. So I do have the support, but I think notwithstanding the fact that that radiology is incredibly busy and we do have a shortage of consultant radiologists, you know, that that's a fact. And so there is a constant tension that, you know, that that is a barrier to, to research in that there is constantly the list of cross-sectional imaging to report or uh, another waiting list of, of patients requiring intervention. So that definitely is a challenge and I think something that should be high up on the priority for the Royal College because clearly, not to get too political, but you know, clearly the, the, the increase in workforce is uh, a priority which is, which is welcome. But I think the recognition of academic radiology has to be a high level priority as well, because without that and without embracing new techniques, technologies, whether that's artificial intelligence or new forms of treatment, which I'm involved in, then really we're not going to be at the forefront of, of tomorrow. And, and, you know, clinical radiology has to be there. You know, we can't outsource this. You know, there's lots of other specialties that are using radiology within their research. And it's always saddening to, to see a project where you know a radiologist hasn't even been you know hasn't hasn't had discussions within the startup of that project because actually when people talk about you know radiologists involvement in research i would argue that actually radiologists are involved in research all the time perhaps not even knowing it you know whether that's that they're doing resist reporting for a scan that that slides under the radar on the reporting pile whether that's a discussion with an oncologist about uh, which scan is best to use for a particular diagnostic pathway, which then gets written into a protocol. These are important things that, that we need to recognize and we need to be involved and engaged within those decision-making pathways so that we can ultimately provide the best studies that we can, which ultimately benefits our patients because we are clinical radiologists. We are not radiologists as in just reporting studies. This comes on really nicely to a question that we explored in some of the early episodes, actually, which was who really are the leaders of imaging research? Mark, as an interventionalist, you are working directly with patients, and that does, just from a broad perspective, put you in a position where you are more you know, facilitated to be leading that research program, leading those clinical trials. But what do you think more from a diagnostic perspective about how radiologists could have greater ownership across this huge swathe of technology that, of course, is used in surgery, cardiology, just to name but a few of these other specialties? Obviously, artificial intelligence is sort of the boom industry at the moment. We're involved in a few projects locally within that. And, and I think, as many have said before me, that, that radiology is so well positioned to lead that. Whether it's going to be the panacea that everyone thinks it is or not, I think clearly it's here to stay. And for us not to embrace it, I think, is, is foolhardy. I think we have the skill set with regards to the technology, with regards to identifying which are the questions. And that's one thing that, that I really struggle with, is that there's a lot of money and support and tech out there, but without really drilling down as to what is the important question here. So, you know, we always go back to AI for nodule spotting, spotting in lungs. Now, actually, I think that's that's quite a good idea. There probably is utility in that. But I hear a lot of other ideas of topics where I think, well, I'm not really sure that's the best use of funding. Do you think that radiologists have become a little bit removed from that question in because of the pressures that are on their day-to-day -day work? Yes, I think that's right. And I don't know what it's like in Wales with regard to the, the number of radiologists and, and the pressure on, on clinical work. So that would, it would be welcome to, to know that, Kieran. But 
certainly the workload is increasing exponentially and we do have a problem with the workforce. You know, we, we need more radiologists. Unfortunately, academic pursuits are seen by many as a luxury. You know, without embracing, without driving the academic work, then clinical radiology, I believe, will be in a, a much worse place in the next 10 years. There's a very interesting article in the recent ClinRAD at the front end by Fiona Gilbert on academia and leadership, and she discusses in that staffing levels are absolutely key. So by just campaigning for increased radiologist numbers, whether it be by proportion or meeting a threshold, that is clearly going to strengthen the involvement of radiologists in research. Kieran, can I come on and ask you about your thoughts on this and, you know, leadership, opportunity, pressures on radiologists? Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, Wales is the same as the rest of the UK. You know, we are desperately short of radiologists at the moment. And that does have, have an impact on the time that people have to join in research. But I think it's just so important that radiologists do lead imaging research. And there's something extra that radiologists add to that. It, they ask the important questions and they understand how parameters that can be changed, etc., affects the research question. So it, it is important that radiologists lead research, but also work within a team. You've got to also have clinician buy-in to your research studies. You've got to have the support of other specialities, be that to recruit patients to studies or simply to understand the impact that imaging research will have within patient care. So I'm definitely for radiologists leading more imaging research. That's one of, I think, the big goals of the Craft Podcast is to promote the opportunity and awareness of the ability to radiologists to be leaders in research. And I think that any funders listening, it would be fantastic to see dedicated imaging uh, research streams. And I think, as Mark mentions, having something like AI in our realm is a very powerful horse to ride through and say, look, take note. And, you know, when you're submitting your grants, for your projects to the funding bodies to know that there will be someone on the grant review board that is you know representative of the imaging expertise and the imaging research that's going on i think these could all be things that will help drive forwards leadership in imaging research in the hands of radiologists Okay, so look, we're coming towards the end of the time that we have for this part two of episode four, but it is the stage where I like to get the magic eight ball out and ask where you think you're going to be in 10 years time. Kieran, can I put you on the spot and see what the eight ball returns? Well, hopefully I'm still involved in research in 10 years time, unless something happens in the meantime. As we talked about earlier, I'd like to lead radiology research further and... Who knows, maybe I'll um, have set up my own clinical trial and be leading that in 10 years' time. Mark, what does the Magic 8-Ball say for you? Um, well, I think, like people say, everyone has a book in them. Now, I think what we've done recently is just got a big grant for a randomised control trial, which is looking at the knee treatment against the sham. We've got an ethics review coming up, so hopefully that's successful. And rather than a book, I think everyone has one RCT in them, perhaps. And I think I think I could only ever do it once, actually, because it's been a huge <laughs> amount of work for the whole team. So, yeah, if, if I can if I can get the uh, the randomized control trial off the ground and 
see that through to a, a decent scientific conclusion, that would be uh, certainly the next you know, five years of my career. So that's, that's kind of where my passion and, and work lies at the moment, is trying to do that properly and get that off the ground and up and running. So that, that's probably the next, next five-year plan. Maybe not 10 years, but next, that's the five-year plan. Okay, a couple of things in there that we're definitely going to have to hold you to. And although I've sometimes forgot to ask, it's always been something that I'm mindful of. It would be great to you know, revisit this and see what the progressions have been, what the new challenges, how the world has changed and how everyone's getting on with their, their research in the future, maybe a year's time, two years, whatever. So I hope you might uh, both be minded to come back and speak to us again. It'll be a pleasure. Absolutely. So that's all we have time for in this second and final part of episode four. It's been an enormous pleasure to talk with all our guests, uh, Christina Messieu and Michelle Williams in part one, and of course our guests today in part two, Mark Little and Kieran Foley. Thanks as always to Charlotte McKeon and the Royal College of Radiologists events team and the college for supporting this podcast. And of course, Sue Mercer for her invaluable sound editing. As usual, the show notes will be available at the RCR website. And if you have any questions about what we have discussed today or any other matters related to academic radiology and imaging research, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk. That's conf at rcr.ac.uk. Here's also a final reminder that the RCR Clinical Radiology Research Day is next week on Wednesday, the 18th of November, at the end of which as many as possible of our Crash Podcast guests will come together for a live discussion and answer any questions that you have sent in. And uh, just like to remind you that we'll have two more Crash Podcast releases in 2020. In episode five, released on Wednesday, the 2nd of December, we will be talking with three professors about their take on life in academic radiology and, of course, subjecting them to the Crash Test. Then we will be releasing a Christmas special, which brings together thoughts from all our female guests on what they think could be done to strengthen opportunities for women in academic radiology. Do not miss this final episode of the year that will be released on Wednesday, the 16th of December. For all you trainees out there, don't forget about Radiant, the Radiology Academic Network for Trainees at www.radiantuk.com and get your training scheme involved. So if you've enjoyed your ongoing crash experience, tell your friends and colleagues, give us a thumbs up and subscribe. Finally, it looks like I might need to stand corrected as Rainbow Dash appears to be a strong choice for my listeners as a favourite from the My Little Pony crew. Well, there you go. I've been your host, Tom Termazai. Until next time, stay safe.